Hey, uh, good morning. What a gift to, to be led in worship by this team. I'm so grateful for them. Um, if you're new in this room and we don't know who you are yet, um, I, I want you to know that we've prayed for you. We're especially glad that you're here. Our prayers for you would be that you would hear and experience God, not us as a team or our church as a people, but ultimately that you would be blessed by God himself. And so if you're here and you'd like to let us know that you're here so we could follow up with you, you can fill out a card in the seat back in front of you and drop it in the give boxes to the right and to the left of the doors on your way out. We'll contact you in a respectful way. Now, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 22, so if you have a physical copy of God's Word today, I'd love for you to turn with me there and read along. We're going to be plowing through almost the entire chapter up till verse 19. We've been looking at fathers or patriarchs in Genesis over the last several weeks, and today we're going to uh, revisit a story that probably will be familiar for a lot of you. It's familiar for me. It's a story that I've heard from the time I was a child growing up in church. Um, and, and with stories like this, it feels a bit intimidating to just even open it up because long after all of our names are going to be forgotten, this story is going to be told. This story has been told. And so I want us to ask as we pray and read through this that the Lord would open our eyes to see it anew. That maybe we would sit on the edges of our seats once again as if we had not heard this story and did not know the outcome of what's going to happen with Isaac. Um, so would you read prayerfully with me, and then we're going to ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word, starting in verse 1 of chapter 22 of Genesis. <clears throat> After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. 
And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Together, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach this story, I pray that you'd give us an adequate degree of reverence and care. That our hearts would be stilled long enough to consider this great test that you laid out for Abraham. And the great faith that Abraham displayed in this offering. And all the truths that became clear to him in that moment. That you are provider, as you have said. And I pray that this time in your word would be a time of renewal for your people that are gathered in this room. Pray that your word would come and accomplish all that the Spirit intends. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just to recap, over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the life of Abraham, his call in Genesis chapter 12. God calls him, he makes promises to him, and Abraham sets out. And then between chapters 12 and 22, where we're at today, there have been various tests where Abraham has failed and various tests that maybe he's succeeded in to some degree, all assuring him of this promise that God would do what he's promised him that he would do, that God is going to make this covenant. He's going to establish this covenant with Abraham to bless him, to make his name great, to make him a great nation, to give him an offspring and offsprings that are like the sand on the shore and like the stars in the heavens. And Abraham has attempted at this point to bring about God's promise to him by his own way with Hagar, which we covered last week. He has a son named Ishmael. And right before this, he's cast Ishmael out and Hagar so that they might not be a threat to Isaac. They throw a party when he's weaned. Isaac is weaned and they celebrate, they celebrate all the ways that God has filled their home with laughter because of this gift. And right in the midst of them celebrating, uh, there's a threat to him. Ishmael is sent out. This child is special, okay? He's special because God has promised him to this, this couple and because they had waited for him for 25 years, maybe even longer God promised not only that he would be a child, but that he would accomplish something through this child specifically. That he would be a child of promise through which a Savior would come that would be a blessing to all the nations, to all the peoples. So the inheritance of Abraham's possessions, the eventual possession of the land that God has promised, which hadn't happened yet, And the promise of a Savior is riding on this one individual child. God's already said it's going to come through him. You're going to name him Isaac. And now he's arrived. And it seems like everything has somewhat been resolved. At least the offspring piece. 
And this child is precious. He's valuable. He's loved. A miracle baby that confirmed that God's word was true. So if you can imagine this miracle child walking around in their household and around their house, and for Abraham and Sarah, every time they looked at Isaac, their son, they were seeing that God kept his promise. He was a visible confirmation that God kept his word to them. Every time they saw him, they would look at him and think, God's word is reliable. He does the thing that he says he's going to do. Now, to say that Isaac is valuable to Abraham does not do justice to what he was to Abraham, what he meant, that God's word was reliable. To say that Isaac was valuable doesn't do justice to the fact that this was an incredible gift. To say that Isaac was valuable to the people of Israel, all who would be born after this point would be an understatement of how valuable this one individual would be. To say that he's important to all of us in this room who would ever come to faith through this child that would bring about a Savior that he's laid on the altar here is so important. It's an important part of our redemption to see what's at stake in this moment. That through this life, this individual young boy eventually would become, become a king who would rescue and redeem and be a blessing to all the nations. So there's a lot at stake in this moment. He's this visible representation that nothing is too hard for God. Now, in the moment that Abraham and Sarah have laughed at the promise and now they laughed at receiving, they've come to some realization that nothing really is too hard for God. Is God really able? That's the question that they've been asking throughout the saga of promises and confirmations, promises and confirmations. Is God able? Can he really accomplish things that are really hard? I want to point out today that not only is God able, believing that he's able is not some kind of refuge for every difficult test that will be laid out in front of us. Biblical faith is not some escape from any difficulty. It's not an escape from retreating from sacrifice. It's not walking away from what we might lose. It's an invitation to offer up everything that God has provided for you in order to gain everything God wants to give you. That's what biblical faith looks like. Bottom line today is that God tests and provides for the faithful. We're going to look at these three things. God's test to Abraham, Abraham's obedience, and then God's provision at the close of this chapter. Let's first look at God's great test. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now, before he does the test, we know that he tests people. Maybe some of you would have this assumption that God wouldn't dare test us or, to, or see what our faith is made of. But all throughout the scriptures, God lays out tests for the people who follow him. Maybe some of you would find this idea uncomfortable. I find the idea of passing a test uncomfortable. But if you have a view that does not include God's evaluation of you, you're missing out on what the Scriptures would describe of biblical faith. Now, the Scriptures do say for us not to judge one another, but it doesn't say that God isn't on His throne evaluating the people who belong to Him. He's on the throne, and He looks at His people individually to see what their character, what their faith is made of. And in this moment... He's giving Abraham a test to do two things, to reveal his faith, 
to reveal himself to his faith and to refine his character. He administers tests like this. In Proverbs 17, 3, it says this, the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. So if you came into this room thinking that God does not administer examinations to us in our faith as we walk for him, the first thing I want you to see in this passage is that God does still test people. Each trial, each test is leading us to moments where we will manage this choice to not lean on our own understanding, but to trust in the Lord. Every episode in your life, every season will be an opportunity to lean into your own understanding or to invest your trust in the one who keeps his promises. And this unique friendship that God's called Abraham and Abraham hears him. It's not the first time that Abraham has heard his name called. And in this moment, he hears his name called and Abraham's response is, here I am. That rings familiar for all of the times before. There's a readiness in Abraham to hear the Lord. For him to hear and respond, here I am. Now there's three times in this passage where he says, here I am. This is the first one. Then Isaac asked him, Father, where are you? And he says, here I am. And at the end, Abraham will be called by God again. And he says, here I am. The first here I am is followed by this test. Look at verse 2. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. First thing I want you to see about this test, he's not just calling him and Abraham saying, here I am. He knows what he's asking of him. He sees it clearly and he names it here. He says, I want you to take your son. Now in this moment, if it was just this word, if I were Abraham, I'd be like, the one that I just cast out, the one that's run off, Ishmael, can I go get that guy? Let's bring him for this episode. No, your only son. Now, anybody who's already read the chapter before this realizes he has at least two sons at this point, but one of them has been cast out, and one is the child of promise. He says, the only son, and then he names him, the one that I named for you before he arrived, Isaac, the one who means laughter, and then he follows up with this, the one whom you love. He's valuable to you. Listen, Every time God asks us something in any act of obedience, he knows what he's asking of us. He knows exactly what it is. He's not numb or dull to the things that he calls us to sacrifice. He sees them clearly and he names them in this. Your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Abraham's attachment to this boy is not misunderstood by God the Father. He sees it clearly. He names it before he asks him to do anything. Anybody ever have this feeling that you're like, I don't know if you understand what you're asking me to do, Lord. You cannot possibly understand what you're asking me to do. This feels far too hard. This feels far too difficult. One thing I want you to know is that God always comprehends it better than you do. He knows what he's asking us and calling us to. I want you to offer him there as a burnt offering. And he names something that just feels familiar to Genesis chapter 12. He says, you're going to this place. I'll show you when you get there, okay? So first Abraham has like a region, the land of Moriah, okay? That's vague enough. And he's like, there's going to be a mountain there and it's going to become clear to you when you get there. That's where you're going, okay? 
This tends to be how God works. He's like, here's the vicinity. When you get there, you'll know, okay? And he gets there, and he knows. He sets out. Uh, same, same as Genesis chapter 12. It's going to be a land that I'll show you. Now, real quick, sidebar, God never calls us to do anything that would contradict his law. And this is this exceptional case. This is not prescriptive. If, God te- if you think that God told you to do something like this, you are wrong, okay? And in this extraordinary case, God is acting in a way that would contradict his law. Or he's calling him to something that would have contradicted his law. Now, we can see that at the end of this, that God doesn't actually ask him to do something that contradicts his law. God never does this. This is the only time that he asks someone to do something in the whole of scriptures that would be against something he's previously commanded. He said, I want you to take this gift that I've given you, the gift that you could not have done and accomplished for yourself, and I want you to offer him up. Now, there's lots of times where God takes provisions that only he could make and ask us to release them. This is a provision that only God could have accomplished, and here is Abraham's response. Now, before we get to his response, um, I've already said any test of faith is an opportunity to lean into our own understanding or trust the Lord's understanding, to trust the Lord with all our hearts and not to lean into our own understanding. Any test is an opportunity to obey specifically when it's difficult. There's this little song I used to sing over my kids, Listen and Obey Without Delay. Listen and obey. Show me that you hear the words that I say. Listen and obey. Now, God may be asking today for very specific, real circumstances in your life for you to hear him and obey. The test of faith usually plays itself out in obedience. There's some things that are particular obedience that God may call you to do. But more times than not, it's just general obedience. He's given us lots of things he's already revealed. It's not like a mysterious thing to know what God might call you to obey him in. He's given us his law. He's given us the word. He's given us the gospels where Jesus taught us, this is how you live. So when I think about what could God potentially test us in, it's not some specific thing on the typical basis. This is extraordinary, okay? More times than not, it's just... Will you respond to the things he's already revealed? God tests Abraham, and I want to ask you this before we look at his response. How do you particularly prepare for a test? Now, I see three different ways in my kids that they prepare for tests. There's one of my kids, you can guess who, who crams for a test. Every time they know it's coming, it's like on the drive to school, oh, I didn't prepare for this, I'm trying to get ready for this. And then there's other kid, another potential kid of mine that maybe has planned out well in advance, where they're thinking, how will I potentially pass this test? I know that it's coming. I want to prepare for it. And then there's one who doesn't even understand that tests exist. Here, I want you to know that, that in all of your experience, your belief, and your understanding of what might be laying in front of you, God does this kind of thing. And he invites us to prepare for this kind of thing to remember what he's promised and to see how he's provided in the past, to over and over see the ways that he works and remember them and collect them. 
in, in our memories to say, Lord, you've promised and you've delivered over and over and over. And this had to be the greatest moment of conflict for Abraham that you could possibly imagine. Conflict, sorrow, and in this conflict and sorrow, he moves towards obedience. Let's look at his obedience, starting in verse 3. It says, he rises early in the morning. Now, I've read some commentaries here that just means that, man, he was just eager to obey. But anybody who had a difficult day that you were anticipating, he didn't sleep, okay? This guy was not sleeping through the night before, I do not believe. I think he was up early because he didn't sleep very well the night before. And he gets up early in the morning, he sets out, he cuts some wood, He doesn't lay there and think about the terrible journey ahead of him any longer. And he stood up, he goes outside and stepping outside, I can imagine in the early hours of the day on the eastern horizon, the light is about to shine and he looks over towards the western horizon and perhaps he sees the stars and is reminded of the fact that one day his offspring through this particular offspring would outnumber the stars in the sky. The Bible doesn't say that, but I can imagine it. Anybody got up early in the morning and on one side of the horizon you see the light rising and on the other side you see the darkness and there's still a few stars remaining. His face was set. He stops and gets some wood for the offering and he goes to the place that God has told him. He brings two other guys with him, two young men in verse 4 on the third day. I just think it's significant that they travel for three days in particular. He lifts up his eyes and sees the place from afar. And somehow he knows that the place that he can see from afar is the place that God has invited him to go. And when he sees it and he knows, he tells two of the guys to stay put. And in this amazing profession of faith, he says this, the boy and I will go over there and worship and come again to you. Some might think that he's just misleading the crowd. I really believe that he, this was his first profession of what's going to happen. He's saying to them that we're going to go there and worship and we are going to come back to you. So he takes the wood, he takes for the burnt offering, he lays it on Isaac's shoulder, he takes the, the fire and the knife And both of them go up together, and then we see this conversation. Now, throughout this story, you have like just the idea that they've been traveling for three days. I don't imagine there's been much conversation on this on this trip. Like, I'm sure if I were Abraham, I'm not feeling like conversing about what we're going to do. Verse seven, Isaac says to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham in verse eight says. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. The second piece of the puzzle. Okay, the first profession of Abraham's faith is we're going to go there and we're both going to come back. Second time, he says to Isaac, we're going to go there and God's going to provide. He's speaking in faith. He doesn't know how, perhaps, that God's going to do it, but he's believing that God's going to provide. Also, we see in this little conversation that Isaac knows what's going on here, okay? So this isn't the first time that they've gone and done this particular thing in worship. Abraham had made a practice of worshiping with his kids so that when it happened, they're going, hey, I see the wood, I got the fire, where's the lamb? 
It would have been familiar for Isaac because his father had led him to worship before. Here, the second of the three times he's called out and Abraham says, here I am. Now, you imagine hearing your boy, your only boy, the boy that you love, calling dad, hey dad, and responding, here I am. These two times that he speaks this profession of faith to the young man and to Isaac, that he, he genuinely does believe that they're going to worship and return, that God is going to provide for them. And these two things are clear, that Abraham somehow doesn't know how, but God's going to make a way. He's trusting in God's provision and discipling both these guys. This is what we're going to do, and I believe it. Saying to Isaac, this is what's going to happen. God's going to provide. This confession of faith was fueled by his belief that God would do it. Now, the purpose of a test is typically to review what's already been learned, right? So if you get to a test, some of you have tests coming up. Those of you in medical school, you've already told me. You guys are getting ready for this this big round of tests, and you're preparing, and hopefully you've already learned the things that are going to be evaluated. And in this moment, God's called, He's promised, and at this point, He's provided for Isaac, He's provided Isaac to them after 25 years of waiting. And God has shown Abraham at this point that He's a God who provides. He's faithful. But like in any good test, it's not just so that you know the things, but that you can apply the knowledge. Now, he's made two confessions at this point. We're going to go worship and come back. The Lord's going to provide a ram. But now the, the confession that he's made is going to be tested in his actions. Now, a lot of you in the room have the ability to memorize data, okay? If I were to say, what is the, the Apostles' Creed? Maybe you know it by heart. You know what our confession is. But God leads us to points in our faith where we not only have to pass the test of what do we know, but how does it apply to our life? And the true test of faith is not less than our confession. We do need to know what we believe. But it's a lot more than that. The true test of faith is the alignment of our lives in obedience to what we profess to be true. The true test of faith is obedience. John 14, 15, Jesus says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He goes on to say, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And here in this moment, it's revealed, it's not just a confession that Abraham believes. He's acting out of that belief in faith. James chapter 2, James is talking about Abraham's faith. In this very moment, he's describing it and he says this, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Listen, there's, this is so important, okay? Because in our context, there's a lot of people who think they believe. There's a lot of people who know the facts about who God is. And here's what I want us to see, that even the demons believe and they shudder. Okay? There's a lot of people who have a cognitive understanding. The true test of faith comes after this. Real faith is expressed in obedience. Now, we don't believe that anyone is saved outside of God's work and His grace, and yet the evidence of that grace is faith that produces works. It says this in James chapter 2. It goes on right after that, the demons shudder. And then if, in the second chapter, it says... Um, 
Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. God is working to test the faithful and the faithful are being humbled and willing to endure in obedience whatever God would require of us. The way that we know that we're in the faith is that God would put us to the test, and the test is, will you obey me? God's working to bring that out in our lives, to to seek out that kind of examination. And for those that believe, the invitation of the gospel and the New Testament is that we would look at ourselves and say, hey, am I actually in the faith? There's stories like this that impress us about what God's done. And it's also a story of Abraham's faith that we'd hold up and say, hey, do I have that kind of faith? 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 13 says this. It's a command. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? In other words, we shouldn't just assume that because we know the right things to say, that everything's okay. Abraham knew the right things to say. He said, we're going to go up and worship. He tells his son, there's going to be a provision here. But he put that belief to the test when God commanded him to do this. So he goes up the the hill, and then the story slows down, and we're going to really zoom in. Now, this is the part (laughs) that don't make it into many children's Bibles, okay? Verse 9. When they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar and there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Each of these steps, just laying it out. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Can you see him there? Now, the people who would have heard this story for the first time were on the edge of their seats. What's going to happen? the great expense of surrender here for us to wrestle with. Now, if this doesn't cause you to tremble and wonder, how could God, how could Abraham, how could Isaac hop up on that altar? How did all of these things happen? He lays him on the altar and there's this incredible trust, it seems, from Isaac, or either Abraham was like good at wrestling him down. Amazing surrender on both their parts. And this surrender may serve as a potential evaluation of us. How could he, Abraham, Isaac, God, how would I respond? What would I do? No one's being called to this, but there are things that God is calling us to, to surrender that may feel just as costly to you. And God calls him again to this place of willing surrender. And here he calls to him again, Abraham, Abraham, in verse 11. And he says for the third time and final time, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. See that you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. How could we withhold anything from God, from the God who's given those things to us? And that's what tests reveal. Are you willing to release your grasp on the thing that God has provided? 
And then Abraham, in verse 13, lifts up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God provides. He goes and takes the ram. He offers the ram as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now here's the interesting result of this test of faith. You know what the interesting result is? It's not that Abraham said, I did it. I aced the test. He didn't name that place, Abraham aced the test. He didn't set up a rock and said, I did well here. Look at what he says. The conclusion is that God provided. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The Lord, won't he do it? He emphatically states, look, here's the result of the test. I see something clearly now that maybe has been clear in the past, but now it is very clear to me that the Lord provides And then God emphatically restates his blessing on him. I will surely bless you. He's already said this. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of your enemies. Because you have obeyed my voice, there's this emphatic blessing. God lists all of these things. And at the end of the day, God is not only the hero for providing and providing a ram that would be there on the altar instead of his son, but he's also the hero who would bless and, and give him the land. And through this offspring, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. There's this promise of provision. Again, it's interesting. It's interesting to me. That Abraham naming the place is not the Lord has provided. But he names the place, future tense, the Lord will provide. Won't he do it? This is what he does. This is who he is. I will surely bless you. Now, biblical faith. (laughs) It's a mixture of tests and trials. It's not Instagram cute. It's not. The result of this would be that we ask the same question that God asked of Abraham and Sarah before. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Now, if some of you have a profession where you'd say, no, nothing is too hard for the Lord. But let me tell you, God is going to bring you to moments in your life where you ask that question of yourself and you will be forced to lean into your own understanding and say, no, there are things that are too hard for him or trust in the Lord with all of your heart. That's the decision that lies on the other side of every test. Will you trust him or will you lean into your own understanding? Is anything too difficult for God? No. No, nothing's too difficult. In fact, he'd already brought Isaac to life from the dead. That's what Romans says, that he was able to bring things that didn't exist into existence. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, it's not going to be on the screen, but it says this, Abraham, in this moment, he considered God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words, Abraham in this moment believed something that had not been demonstrated before in the history of the scriptures. Before this moment, Abraham believed God is able to raise him from the dead. That's what we find out in in, uh, Hebrews. So did Abraham really believe that? Yes. Do you really believe that? That the Lord is able to raise things from the dead? Is God really able? Is he really good? Is there anything too difficult for him? Because I can guarantee you that most of us have a short list that we wonder about. (laughs) 
Is this too difficult for him? And God's going to bring us to moments where we have to express trust in him that he actually is bigger than this, whatever this difficulty is. And so I want two applications. I'm really wrapping up, okay? Sleepy day, sleepy day. First thing is this. God does test the faithful. That is the normal life of walking with Christ. He tests those that belong to him to see, are they holding fast to the confession? In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, it says this. This is a command for everyone who would belong to him. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, the context of saying that were people being persecuted, losing their possessions, having their land stolen from them, and their families abandoned them. That's the context, okay? Let's see it again. Let us hold fast our confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So he tests us if we belong to him. And the result of that test is this. It's not that we get to the other side and say, hey, anybody ready to pat me on the back here? We get to the other side and say, he's faithful. He's the one who's provided. We don't set up some monument to ourselves. God, in all of his glory, has given us the assurance of his promises, and we're clinging to them today and believing that at the end of the day, is the goal is not that we would be some kind of superhero of faith, but that God would show himself faithful again. He tests the faithful, and the Lord provides for them. The hero is not Abraham. It's God himself. This provision, it might not be what you anticipate. It usually isn't. The obedience is probably going to cost you more than you bargained for. The end result will definitely look different than what you anticipate, but he will be seen and known and loved. That's what he does. That's what he accomplishes over and over and over. The Lord makes himself known. And once again, we rejoice that God has provided for us. And so the invitation today, you know what happened on this mountain? He names this. Mount Moriah, this place where God has provided. And then later, David comes back and purchases this mountain as a little parcel of land where one day the temple would be. And for thousands of years, people would ascend this this same mountain, bringing lambs with them and remembering that the Lord had provided that place would forever be known as the place of God's provision. Solomon eventually builds the temple there where these thousands of generations climb the holy hill of the Lord and make their sacrifices. And ultimately, one day, the ultimate sacrifice would be offered. And instead of our death, there would be a lamb. There would be a wooden cross laid on his shoulders and he would ascend that hill again. There would be a crown of thorns on his head freely offered to everyone who would come and believe. And the one who walks up, John the Baptist, is there baptizing people, and he walks up and he proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The ultimate revelation of God's provision is Jesus Christ. That he would offer his own life instead of our own. He passes every test to faith. He's tempted in every way without sin. He's faithful. He prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And in all the ways that we've said, not your will, but mine be done, the Lord succeeded in all of those tests so that we might live in the good news. And so today, as we close out our service, one of the, th- one of the things we do every week is take 
of the bread and dip it in the cup. And the reason that we do this is because Jesus asked that we would remember his provision for us in this particular way. So I want to pray, and then we're going to take communion together. My hope for us is that we would not only know that we're, we're going to be tested, it's one of the things that God does, but that in every test, the Lord is faithful to provide. Would you bow with me and pray that that would be so for us? Lord, thank you for your word today. I pray that it would be sealed in our hearts. That you would, uh, for those that are weary and wondering if you might provide for them, I pray that you would just make it sure to them today. For those who've trusted in your ultimate provision, God, I pray that we would rejoice once again that you climbed the hill and passed the test. You died there instead of us so that we might receive life. For those that are being tested today, maybe it's in a particular way or just generally, will they walk with you? I pray, Lord, that you would call and they would answer. Here I am. Probably particular people in this room that are being called right now. They feel uh, just a real awareness that you're inviting them into this journey of faith. Pray that you'd give us grace for the journey. For those that are weary and wondering and wondering how long is it going to be before you provide, Lord, I pray that you would just secure our hope in the things to come. Lord, you've never failed. You will not fail. We just sang about that. We're holding fast to this confession. Pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to rejoice in your provision. In some of us, the places that we don't see it yet. Assure us, renew us. And I pray that you'd make yourself known today. They would walk away from this room saying, the Lord is good. He's provider. He's still on the throne. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.